I mentioned last week in the introduction to this series on Romans that Paul had never visited Rome. He had not planted the church there, and in fact, he was unknown to the church at Rome except by reputation, which for Paul could be either a good thing or a bad thing. You see, Paul had a lot of enemies, and it was not uncommon for him to have to defend both his reputation and his doctrine. Now, New Testament scholars will debate the purpose of Paul in writing what is his longest letter, but it seems to me that the lack of familiarity between Paul and the congregation at Rome accounts for at least some of his reasoning. In my 10 years as a senior pastor, I have started a new ministry twice. In 2009 at First Baptist Buffalo and in 2014 here at First Baptist Nixon. Now both times I knew exactly where I needed to begin my preaching ministry. Not knowing very well at least the church to which I had been called, I did not know what they had been taught, I didn't know what their beliefs were, I didn't know what they valued, what they prioritized, I didn't know what they believed first and fundamentally about the gospel. So before we could move on, we needed to ensure that we were on the same doctrinal foundation. And so at First Baptist Buffalo, I began with a series entitled Foundations, in which we covered some of the basic tenets of the Christian faith, doctrinal issues like the Bible, the gospel, the church, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, and so forth. The thought was, if we could not get on the same page regarding these elementary matters, then we would never be able to move forward as a church. Well, likewise, when I came to First Baptist Nixa, we jumped immediately into the book of Galatians because we needed to get the gospel right. I had no idea what this church had been taught about the gospel or what level of priority the gospel held in this church's mission and ministry. And so before we could go anywhere as a church, we needed to agree on that which is most foundational, namely the gospel of God. And I think the same situation accounts for the content and length of the book of Romans. We know that Paul had never been to Rome. He tells us that in Romans 1.13. We also know it's highly unlikely that Peter had yet been to Rome, though he would spend extensive time there in the following decade. So the most likely explanation for the existence of this church, which Paul and Peter had never visited, is that it was planted by Roman Jews who had been in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit had fallen and the new covenant church was born. We read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 10 that there were pilgrims from Rome in the midst of the assembly that day to whom Peter preached and on whom the Holy Spirit fell. These pilgrims then brought their faith back to Rome and started a church. Thus, to our knowledge, no apostle had ever visited Rome. 
In addition, it's clear from all of the greetings in Romans chapter 16 that Paul had many friends and many acquaintances from Rome who would have brought to him news of the Roman church. And this, I believe, accounts for the composition of the letter. Here is a church located in the most important, the most strategic city in all of the world which to that point we think had never had the benefit of a visit from an apostle who would establish their doctrine on an apostolic foundation. In addition, it seems that Paul had heard word of some of the doctrinal and social tensions which existed in the church as a result of the Jewish and Gentile composition of the Roman church. And we see, therefore, that there were some issues that Paul knew needed to be addressed before he came. There was gospel confusion in the church of Rome. And so Paul wrote to supply this strategically important congregation with some apostolic clarity. Especially considering that he intends to make Rome the new launching point for his next missionary journey. Paul intends to make Rome the new Antioch, as it were. He intends to make it his home base for his fourth missionary journey in which he plans to go to the far western reaches of the Mediterranean world, to Spain and beyond. For such a strategic partnership to work, Paul knew that he and the Roman church needed to share the same doctrinal foundation. They needed to agree on the gospel of God, and they needed, frankly, to embrace Paul as their apostle. So for these reasons, Paul wrote Romans, and for these reasons, Paul begins this massive letter in the way in which he does, namely, with a summary of his gospel. Now, we're five years into our ministry together at First Baptist Nixa, and we have, I think, established a strong doctrinal foundation. We have prioritized the gospel in our ministries and in our missions. We have created a gospel-centered, gospel-driven, gospel-saturated church. So the question may arise, why do we need Romans? We're not like the church at Rome. This church has, I trust, been founded upon the apostolic foundation. Well, let me give you three reasons why we need this gospel at this time. Why we need Romans at this time in the life of our church. Three reasons. Number one. We exist in a sea of gospel confusion. See, just because we live in the Bible Belt and are surrounded by other churches does not mean that there is clarity concerning what the gospel actually is. In fact, I would suggest that the pervasive unhealthiness of churches in our area suggests that the gospel has not only been confused, but has been corrupted in many of our churches. So in a culture of gospel confusion, this church needs to be exceptionally clear on what the gospel is. Reason number two, we have visitors and new members coming into our church all the time. 
and they need to be incorporated as well into our doctrinal foundation. We cannot afford to build a foundation and then leave that foundation alone while we move on to other things. If you continue to build on a foundation within, without continually strengthening it, continually expanding it, that, that structure is going to get top-heavy and it's going to fall over. The gospel foundation of this church must be continually re-examined and continually strengthened. The law of entropy, which says that all things naturally move towards chaos and disorder, is at play in churches just as it is in the natural world. Churches do not tend by nature towards greater clarity in the gospel. They tend in the other direction. In other words, if you just leave a church be, if you just leave it alone, it's not going to get more pure. It's going to get less pure. Due to the nature of sin, churches tend towards gospel confusion. That is, unless acted upon by some external force. In this case, that external force is the regular preaching of the gospel through Romans. It is through sermons like these and through series like these that we keep the foundation of this church strong and stable and enable ourselves to add more and more members without dissipating into gospel chaos. Reason number three, we need Romans. To borrow an illustration from Jared Wilson, which, credit where credit is due, I was pointed to by my wife, he says the gospel is like C.S. Lewis's wardrobe in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The external simplicity of the gospel, okay, that simplicity that I hope to preach today from Romans 1, 2 through 6, it opens up into whole worlds of truth that we will explore over the next few years from the rest of the book. In other words, we will never exhaust the riches and the depths of the redemptive work of God in Christ, which are displayed for us on the pages of this book. Now, Paul is going to spend the next 11 chapters exploring the depths of the gospel. But before he does, he provides his readers with a very basic introduction, a summary of what the gospel is. In other words, today we're going to examine the wardrobe of the gospel. Next week, we're going to strike out into the wonders of Narnia, so to speak. Last week, we looked at verses 1 and 7, which together form the standard greeting of first century epistles. Look down at your text with me. Paul began by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Okay, that's the beginning of his standard introduction. Now skip down to verse 7, and he concludes it. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can find similar greetings in every one of Paul's letters. But between verses 1 and 7, Paul inserts this long parenthetical statement in which he defines what he means by the gospel of God. So right from the very start, he wants to clear up any confusion about what kind of gospel 
he has been appointed a minister of. So we're going to take that parenthesis this morning and we're going to make it the focus of our attention. This is going to serve as a summary and introduction to our series, just as it served as a summary and introduction to Paul's letter. So what is the gospel of God? In these five verses, Paul provides us with six essential components of God's gospel. Number one, Paul tells us the source of the gospel. Look at verse two. Paul says he was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, in this verse, Paul speaks of, of two sources, or rather he speaks of the one source in two ways, its ultimate source and its immediate source. So first and ultimately, the source of the gospel is God. It's God's gospel. It finds its source in God's determination before the world began to save a people from their sin. In other words, if you were to trace the river of redemption all the way up to its source, you would find that source in the wellspring of God's divine and sovereign grace. Paul speaks of this eternal source of the gospel in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It's up on the screen. Paul tells Timothy, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, notice this, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul says, long before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was manifested. Long before he abolished death by death and brought life and immortality to light, God had purpose to give his people, us, grace in Jesus Christ. So the gospel begins and ends with God. But second, and immediately, the source of the gospel is the prophet's through whom God spoke beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. You see, the, the number one accusation levied against Paul throughout his apostolic ministry was that he was proclaiming something new, something that no one had ever heard before, something that he had invented out of thin air, and most importantly, something that contradicted the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Therefore, Paul was always at pains to prove that his gospel was not new, but it was promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. He's going to do this over and over and over again in the book of Romans. And it's interesting. It's interesting to note that in Galatians 1, Paul is adamant that he did not receive his gospel from men, but by direct revelation from Christ Jesus. I didn't consult with men. I didn't get my gospel from men. Jesus gave it to me directly by immediate revelation. Yet, he never wants people to think that the direct revelation that Christ gave him is somehow out of whack with the Old Testament scriptures that were already given. 
He wants us to see that the gospel that Christ gave to him is attested everywhere in the Old Testament. He wants us to see that the gospel that he will set forth in Romans is the very same gospel that was promised to Abraham, Romans 4.3, to Moses, Romans 9.15 and 10.19, to David, Romans 4.6, to Isaiah, Romans 9.27 and 10.25, to Hosea, Romans 9.25, and to Habakkuk, Romans 1.17, and more besides. Paul is very concerned that the Roman church and us see that God's plan has always been one plan. There is one gospel from before creation to after the consummation. God's plan has never changed. What Paul is giving us in Romans is the same gospel revealed to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and to the prophets. This is foundational gospel truth. There are not now, nor have there ever been, nor will there ever be multiple ways of being justified before God. There has only ever been one people of God. Those who are justified by grace through faith in the promise of the gospel which God purposed beforehand from all eternity. So according to Paul in Romans, this means that no one has ever been justified by works. Not the Jews of the Old Testament, not the Gentiles of the New Testament, not the Cuban, not the Haitian, not the college student in Shanghai, not the villager in Himachal Pradesh in northern India, not the computer programmer in Seattle, not your next door neighbor, and not you. No one has ever and no one will ever be justified by works before God. God's gospel has never changed. He purposed it from all eternity. He promised it through his holy prophets and the holy scriptures. And secondly, he accomplished it in his son, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the second point, the subject of the gospel, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Verses three and four. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul tells us, secondly, that the gospel of God concerns his Son, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. In the briefest of language, you you will not believe what Paul packs into these two verses. In the briefest of language, Paul makes three astonishing claims with regard to the three phases of Jesus' existence. First, He declares that Jesus is the eternal, pre-existent, unique Son of God. Now, the phrase Son of God is used in a handful of ways throughout Scripture. It's used of mankind in general. For instance, in Luke's genealogy, when he refers to Adam as the Son of God, Luke 3.38. It's used of angels. For instance, in Job when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. It's used of the nation of Israel when God calls Israel his sons in Exodus chapter 4. 
It's used of the redeemed, of the new covenant, men and women who are in a redemptive covenant relationship with God, as in Romans 8.16, where Paul says that all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. But Paul would have the Roman church to know, and I would have us to know, that in verse 3, Paul means son of God in a unique sense. Jesus is the son of God in a way in which no one and no thing has ever been the son of God. And Paul signifies this by the word which the ESV translates as descended. Now, Paul does not use the usual word for born. The usual Greek word for born is ginao. Paul doesn't use that. Rather, he uses the verb ginomai, which literally means to become, to change from one state of existence into a different state of existence. Ordinarily, for instance, children do not become into this world. We don't use that language because children do not pre-exist their conception. But Jesus does have prior existence. And so Jesus was not merely born into this world. He became the son of David according to the flesh. Jesus eternally existed as the son of God and then in his incarnation he became Man. Second, and following upon the first claim, Jesus became man. This phrase speaks of Jesus' incarnation. So the first phrase speaks of his eternality. This phrase, according to or descended from David according to the flesh, speaks of his incarnation. The eternal, preexistent, unique Son of God laid aside his glory and became man, sharing with us in all of mankind's humanness and frailty and weakness and suffering and pain. According to Isaiah, he became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But Paul says not only is Jesus the Son of God according to his deity, he became the Son of God according to his flesh. Son of David is a messianic title, and it goes back all the way to God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in which God said to David, you will always have a king from your lineage, a descendant of your physical body, will reign forever upon the throne of David. This coming Davidic king was a frequent topic of the prophets. We saw him, for instance, in Psalm chapter 2. Now again, Paul is only summarizing the gospel in these verses. There's so much more that can and will be said regarding each of these points. But at the beginning of his letter, Paul is only concerned to give us, as it were, a bullet point outline of how the gospel concerns God's Son. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became Jesus, the promised Son of David. Third. Having become man in all of our weakness and suffering and death, Jesus was then declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. I defy you to find a more dense phrase in all of Scripture. Paul used an incredible economy of language. He said worlds of truth in one line. 
Jesus was declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So this third phrase speaks of Jesus' exaltation. Jesus is not only the eternal, preexistent, unique Son of God. He's not only the incarnate Son of David. He is the exalted Son of God in power. Now, I want to spend just a moment unpacking this phrase. Three questions need to be answered. Hey, this, is the, this is the most dense and difficult part of the sermon. Hang with me from here and it will be smooth sailing from then on. Three questions need to be answered. Number one, what does it mean that he was declared the Son of God in power? Number two, what is meant by in power? And number three, what is meant by the spirit of holiness? Okay, let's look at those one at a time. First, what is meant by declared? Well, first, I I need to tell you, and Mike told me to be careful with this, lest I should undermine your, your, your faith in your translation of Scripture, but... I don't agree with the ESV in their translation of this word. Uh, this word, it's the Greek word horizo, is nowhere in the New Testament translated declared. It doesn't have the meaning of to declare. It's used seven other times in the New Testament, and every time it has the meaning of to designate or to appoint. So it raises the question of why would the ESV and the King James and the New American Standard render this word declared rather than appointed like the Christian Standard and the NIV do? Well, it's probably to avoid the theological problem associated with the idea that Jesus was appointed the Son of God after his resurrection as if he were not already the Son of God before his resurrection. But as we've already seen Paul has already established that Jesus had a pre-incarnate existence as the eternal Son of God. So that doctrine is not in danger by saying that God appointed him the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. In fact, the word appoint points to a very important truth. At the incarnation, Jesus changed status. He became man while still remaining the Son of God. At the resurrection, something totally different happened. Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power, which is a phrase that refers not to a change of his status, but a change of his position and function. There's no change of nature. Jesus doesn't become something different at the resurrection than he was before in terms of his nature or his essence. Rather, he is appointed to a new position of authority. A similar statement is made in Acts 2.36 when Peter's preaching at Pentecost and he says, after preaching the resurrection of Jesus, that Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, was Jesus Lord and Christ before his resurrection? Yes. But as his resurrection, or at his resurrection rather, he entered into a new position of authority as Lord and Christ in power. In what sense, then, was Jesus the Son of God after his resurrection that he was not before? What position did he attain by his resurrection from the dead? Paul says he was appointed the Son of God in 
power, which is not a throwaway phrase. It's an important phrase. Because it tells us that it was not Jesus' nature that changed at the resurrection, rather his authority and his position. At the resurrection, Jesus came to power as the risen and enthroned king. Namely, the Son of God promised in Psalm 2-7, where God says of this coming messianic king, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now we're familiar with the language of being in power. When we talk about someone who is in power in a certain nation, we're referring to a person or a party that holds the position of highest authority in that particular government. This is especially true when we're talking about an absolute monarchy, such as the kingdom of God. So if I were to ask the question, who is in power in the kingdom of God? Paul is answering the Son of God. The Son of God, the risen and exalted Son of God, is in power in the kingdom of God. When Jesus, who had always existed as the Son of God, became man in the line of David, when he took upon himself the redemption of his people, when he was crucified for sinners, when he was raised by the spirit of holiness, God appointed Jesus to a position of authority, namely, Son of God in power, and he made him king over all. This is why Jesus, after his resurrection, brought his disciples together and said, all authority has been given to me. Did he possess all authority beforehand? Yes, but in a different way now as the resurrected Savior and King of God's everlasting kingdom, he now has authority over all things. He is the Son of God in power. God has appointed him King over all and seated him at his right hand until he makes all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. Finally, what is meant by according to the spirit of holiness? That's another difficult phrase, which also is found nowhere else in the rest of the New Testament. So we're kind of on our own trying to figure out what Paul means. Uh, Most commentators understand it to be a reference to the Holy Spirit, and I think that they're right. The phrase according to the spirit of holiness should be translated with a capital S. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit, and it's said in opposition to according to the flesh, in verse 3. Okay, so verse 3 spoke of the lowly, humble, fleshly phase of Jesus' ministry, from his incarnation to his crucifixion. Verse 4 speaks of the triumphant, powerful, spiritual phase of Jesus' ministry, beginning with his resurrection from the dead. In other words, in this new phrase, Paul is telling us that Jesus is the one who now pours out the Spirit upon the church. 1 Corinthians 15.45, let me give you some verses that speak to this new function of Jesus as the Son of God in power. What does Jesus do as the Son of God in power? Answer, he pours out his Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.45, thus it is written, the first man became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He's now a spirit who gives life. 
And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descended from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John 16, 7, Jesus tells his disciples, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. He's going to pour forth the Spirit. John 20, 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? So we take those together, summarize it like this. When Jesus was raised from the dead, God the Father appointed him to the position of Son of God in power. And this inaugurated a new phase in Jesus' redemptive ministry, namely the phase in which he baptizes his church in the spirit of holiness. All right, so let's wrap up this point. The gospel of God then concerns Jesus. And it speaks of three phases of Jesus' existence. Number one, it speaks of Jesus as the eternal, preexistent, unique Son of God. Number two, it speaks of the Jesus who became man, the Son of David, in order to accomplish the redemption of his people. This redemption According to the flesh, though Paul glosses over it in this summary, he's going to hammer it home all the way from chapters 3 to 5, telling us that Jesus accomplished this redemption through the death of the cross. Once he had been crucified for sinners, Jesus was then raised from the dead, number 3, and was appointed the Son of God in power. He is now reigning as Lord and King at the right hand of God, and he now baptizes his church in the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul wants us to know that the gospel of God is all about Jesus. So, if I were to take Paul's densely theological language, and I were to try to wrap it into a gospel presentation, it would go something like this. The gospel declares that Jesus has always existed as the Son of God. There was never a time when Jesus was not the Son of God and when God was not his Father. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. But at a time set by the Father, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became man. He became like one of us in order to accomplish our redemption. And not just any man, but he was born according to the promised line of David so that he could be the king of his people by rights. When the eternal son of God who became man accomplished our redemption, he did so by taking our sins in his body, his fleshly body that he now possesses. He took our sins in his body and he surrendered himself to the death of the cross, offering himself as a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of his people. 
when our redemption was accomplished, God then raised his son from the dead, exalted him to the highest place, to the right hand of the Father in heaven, and gave him a new position of authority. He named him, he declared him, he appointed him the son of God in power. And now Jesus reigns over all the cosmos, over all creation, and he baptizes his church in the Holy Spirit. And one day, he's gonna come back and he's going to subdue all of his enemies to himself, and he will reign in the acknowledgement of all people everywhere, in every nation, in every tongue, in all times, he will be acknowledged as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, how do you stand in relation to this Jesus? That's the gospel that Paul preaches. It concerns the Son. Verses 3 and 4 are the hard work. Verses 5 and 6 are not nearly so difficult. Next, Paul identifies the servants of the gospel, namely the apostles. He says, through whom, that is through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. All right, so part of the gospel proclamation especially in a pluralistic culture where there are a lot of claims to truth and authority, part of the gospel message is an explanation of how our gospel came to us and why it is right. It has come to us by means of Christ's apostles, who are his appointed servants and ambassadors who went among the nations declaring the person, work, and way of Christ. So this point speaks to the gospel's reliability. How do we know that, that our gospel is true? Well, this was not an unimportant question in Paul's day because the Greco-Roman world was full of strange religions that proclaimed strange ideas. And so when Paul came to a city and declared that the eternal Son of God became man, was crucified and raised on the third day, and is now the Son of God in power reigning over the universe... He had to provide some evidence for that claim if it was going to be accepted as true. His evidence invariably was his apostleship. An apostle, in the technical sense of the word, was a representative appointed by the risen Christ himself to whom had been delegated power and authority to speak and teach and perform miracles in Christ's name. And there weren't a lot of them. There were the 12, and Paul, and a few others, like James and Barnabas, who are called apostles. But there were enough to establish by their preaching and by their writing the apostolic foundation of the new covenant church. This result, or the result rather, of this apostolic ministry was a faith once for all, delivered to the saints, a unified body of truth, forever codified in the pages of the New Testament, which the church has now been taking to the nations for 2,000 years. Later on in Romans, Paul is going to speak of his apostolic ministry in these terms. Romans 15 and verse 18. He says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to the obedience by word and deed 
by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. How do we know that this gospel is the true gospel? How do we know that it's real? How do we know that it is trustworthy? Well, the gospel message is reliable, according to Paul, because it was transmitted to us by the apostles who were eyewitnesses of these events, who were personally set apart by Christ himself, who were given the grace of apostleship, who were endued with signs and wonders to validate their ministry, and who, by the way, sealed their testimony in their blood. This is a trustworthy gospel because it was given to us by trustworthy servants. Paul then emphasizes the scope of the gospel. It says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. All right, so the gospel of God is intended not just for the Jews and not just for the Romans, but for all the nations, for all the Gentiles. It doesn't make much difference whether we translate that word nations or Gentiles. Both senses are the same when they're worked out to their logical conclusion. Paul's point, he's going to make this over and over and over again, is that the gospel is not just for the Jew, it's also for the Gentile, and it stands to reason then that it's for all Gentiles. This gospel is for people, Jew and Gentile, from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation on the face of the earth which includes you and your family and your friends and your neighbor and everyone else among the nations. In other words, this gospel is not parochial. It's not, it's not for a certain people in a certain territory at a certain time. This is what our culture doesn't seem to understand. Our culture is fine, for the most part, with Christianity, so long as we keep our gospel to ourselves and we don't impose, their word, not mine, our beliefs upon anyone else. The problem is, is that our gospel is not something that can be kept to ourselves. It makes a claim on the life of every man, every woman, every child, from every, every ethnicity living in every culture. Jesus Christ is not just Lord of Christians, he is Lord of all, and his gospel is offered to all, and so is his judgment threatened upon all who will not obey his gospel. The scope of this gospel is universal. It includes everyone, including you. Which brings us to the sum of the gospel, or the purpose or aim of the gospel. Through whom, verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Okay, so Paul again speaks of the gospel and its purpose in terms of two movements, an immediate purpose and an ultimate purpose. The immediate purpose is the obedience of faith. The ultimate purpose is for the sake of his name. So question, what does Paul mean by the obedience of faith? This is, on the face of it, a rather strange phrase for the apostle of justification by faith alone. Well, there are essentially two ways we can take this phrase, and they're not mutually exclusive. 
Number one, we could understand this, we could understand Paul to mean that the gospel's purpose is to bring about the obedience that comes from faith. The obedience that is called for in the gospel is an obedience to God's will and God's way, but it's an obedience that flows out of a true and living faith in Jesus Christ rather than a dead and slavish fear that Paul calls the works of the law. I think this is the best view when viewed theologically. That is, God's goal is to create a new people, a people who love him with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and all of their strength, and who love their neighbor as themselves, thereby fulfilling the law. Or, we could take Paul to mean the obedience that consists in faith. In other words, the obedience called for in the gospel is faith. The way that you obey the gospel is by believing the gospel. This is maybe the best way to view this phrase when considered exegetically. Seems to be the way Paul uses this phrase elsewhere in Romans. I'll tell you that I lean towards the first view, and I have reasons for that which I will give you in chapter 2. But the truth is, is that the two, the two views actually work together quite well. The first response of the gospel calls for faith alone apart from any works. In other words, the way you first initially respond to the gospel is just by believing the gospel and not by working for God. In fact, the way, if you're wondering, how do I come into the saving relationship with Christ, it's by stopping your works and believing on Christ. That is what justifies us before God. But God's plan, God's purpose, God's aim in redemption is not to create a bunch of saved sinners who still walk in sin. His aim is to save sinners who then begin to walk in holiness. That's why he doesn't just justify sinners by faith alone apart from obedience. He also regenerates sinners. He transforms sinners. He causes them to be born again to a new and living hope and a new and living walk because his aim is to create a justified people who become a holy and obedient people who live for the glory of his name. The gospel, in other words, does not call us to just make a decision for Christ. It calls us to make a disciple of Christ. Mission teams, please, please hear me on this. We do not go to make decisions. We go to make disciples. Why? Because the aim of the gospel is not just faith. It's the obedience of faith. God desires a new and holy people. And so if you're not going in order to make disciples, you're just going to make numbers, don't go. Because you will just end up making false converts. The goal of the gospel, and therefore the goal of all missions, is to bring about the obedience of faith among the Cubans, among the Haitians, 
among the nations. Why? And here's the ultimate purpose. For the sake of his name. That's the ultimate aim of God, and it ought to be the ultimate aim of every evangelist and every missionary. God's aim, or God's name rather, is dishonored among the nations because they don't believe him and they don't worship him. And so we go in order that God would be worshipped by the nations and therefore receive the glory that is due his name. John Stott stated it eloquently, as he so often did, being British. He said, we should be jealous, as Scripture sometimes puts it, for the honor of his name, troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due it. The highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God coming in verse 18. Rather, the highest of all missionary motives, listen to me, missionaries, is zeal, passionate, burning zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. There you have it. That is the gospel of God. Its source is God himself, decreed from all eternity and promised in the scriptures. Its subject is Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, the incarnate son of David, the exalted son of God in power. Its servants were the apostles who delivered it to us infallibly. Its scope is both Jew and Gentile, or every man, every woman, every child from every ethnicity and every culture among every nation. Its sum is the obedience of faith, the obedience that comes from faith, so that Jesus Christ may be exalted as the all-glorious Savior and Lord that he is. But Paul includes one final phrase in his summary of the gospel, and it's with this that I will close. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Here, Paul refers to the summons of the gospel. The effectual call of God which powerfully and irresistibly draws sinners to Jesus Christ. By referring to the Roman Christians as the called, he does it twice in two verses. He does it in verse 6, he does it again in verse 7. Paul is insistent that they and us would know ourselves as those who have been specially loved and savingly called to faith in Jesus Christ through God's saving initiative. This is a worldview-shaping doctrine that we're going to focus upon next week. In short, you belong to Jesus Christ because God called you to belong to Jesus Christ. For now, I'm going to leave you with the question of whether or not you are among those who have been called. Are you in verse 6? Paul speaks of a particular group of people, and he calls them those who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. And my question for you and your question for your own heart and soul is, are you one of those people? How do you know? 
Well, the first and surest sign that you too are among those who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ is that the aim of the gospel is being accomplished in your life. What's the aim of the gospel? The obedience that comes from faith. Have you been called to belong to Jesus Christ? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Well, let me ask that question in another way. Have you embraced Christ by faith? And is that faith in Christ transforming your life such that you are becoming increasingly obedient to Christ? If the answer to those questions is yes, you're in verse 6. You've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. If you believe in Christ, and if your faith in Christ is bringing about a transformation of obedience in your life, you have been called. On the other hand, if you don't believe in Christ, or if your so-called faith in Christ is not transforming your heart and bringing about increasing obedience to Christ, you have not yet been called. And you don't belong to Jesus. But you can. Because God is summoning all people everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel. You can, this morning, by grace, embrace Jesus as your Savior. And embark upon a new life of obedience to Christ as his disciple. And you can know that you've been called to belong to Jesus. How all that works out, the relationship between God's sovereign and effectual call and our willing and joyful obedience to that call, we're going to talk about next week. For now, I just want you to know that the offer is free and it's open and it's available for you. If you will believe on Christ and if you will become his disciple, you will be saved. Period. God is summoning you this morning to Jesus through the gospel. Yield to his summons and surrender to Christ And you too will become the heir of all of the astounding promises that are promised to the children of God in this book. And if that's you, if God has been gracious this morning to allow you to recognize that you don't belong to Jesus, but you want to, here's how you should respond. In prayer, between you and the risen, exalted Christ, the Son of God in power. Confess your sins to Him. Confess your inability to save yourself and ask Him to save you. Ask Him to pour out His Spirit upon you, to transform you, to bring forth obedience from your disobedient heart. Call upon the name of Christ and you will be saved.